It's an honor for Pastor Derek, who pastors a remarkable church right outside of Indianapolis called the Spec Church. So would you stand to your feet and help me welcome this man of God to the platform, Pastor Derek Snodgrass. Come on up, Pastor. Yes. Come on, somebody put your hands together for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy. Amen. Oh, come on. You can do better than that. Send up a praise. Let heaven know. David said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Anybody excited to be here tonight? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I'm excited to be here. You can be seated in the presence of the Lord. I'm excited to be back home at the North Georgia Revival. Amen. I'm excited about everything that God is doing and just excited to be and honored to be here to deliver the word of God tonight. Um, just want to give honor to my lovely wife. Latoya is here. Stand up, honey. Thank you for your support and your love. And to my two children, Jackson and Chloe. I don't know where Jackson is. No telling. He may be in the baptistry pool. But uh, he's over there. All right. Thank God for my son and my daughter. They're here. And um, can we just give God some praise for Pastor Todd Smith? Come on. The awesome, the phenomenal, I don't believe there's a word in the dictionary that can describe this anointed man of God. Come on, give it up for Pastor Dr. Todd Smith. And we cannot forget the woman who so gracefully stands beside him, Pastor Karen Smith. God bless you. I'm going to go right into the Word of God. We've got a lot of work to do. I hope you guys are praying for me. And um, just give honor to all of the revival host pastors, Pastor David Edmondson, Pastor Jeff Lyle, Pastor Robbie Mathis. Look, I know everybody's name. Isn't that good? Um, thank God for you all being here tonight. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30. I'm reading from the Amplified Version. The presence of the Lord is in this place. I said, Lord, if you just come a little stronger, I may not have to preach tonight. <laughs> Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 30, Amplified Version. And uh, also, if you put a mark there, we'll be paralleling the entire night. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21 through 29. And they are uh, parallel. Mark gives his version of the story. Matthew gives his from a different slant. And so there's different details. While you're finding that text, let's just bow our heads and let's pray. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would provoke an emergency. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, help the frailty of this vessel. Give boldness and courage. And we pray that we would not accommodate doubt or fear in any form. We come to you tonight as sons of God to challenge a tamed, a therapeutic, culture-based church that has forgotten sometimes to speak the biblical word. Father, let us hear your voice tonight 
And let us say what the world is literally dying to hear. Give testimony to your own self, we pray. Let us hear your voice and your voice alone. Get the glory, and I pray, God, tonight that you will make us militant in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Tonight we're going to be talking from the subject, I refuse to be denied. Somebody say, I refuse to be denied. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus got up and left there and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know about it, but it was impossible for he could not be hidden. Instead, after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, Greek a Seraphonician by nationality. And she kept pleading with him to drive the demon out of her daughter. He was saying to her, first let the children of Israel be fed, for it is not right. It is not meat. It is not proper. It is not good. It is not suitable. It is not appropriate or fair to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. But she replied, yes, Lord. Somebody say, yes, Lord. But even the little pups under the table eat the children's crumbs that fall. And he said to her, because of this answer, which reflected humility and faith, go, knowing that your request is granted. The demon has left your daughter permanently. Somebody say permanently. Verse 30, and returning to her home, she found the child lying on the couch, relaxed and resting, the demon having gone out. And tonight we're talking about, I refuse to be denied. Somebody say, I refuse to be denied. When we look at the text, I'm going to be referencing Matthew and Mark simultaneously. So if you're following along and you don't see some of the details in Matthew, then you can head over to Mark who gives it from a different slant and a different perspective. Mark has a tendency to give us twin miracles. Um, If there's a feeding of 5,000, then there's a feeding of 4,000. If there's a calming of the storm on the sea and the demonic activity dies down in the wind and goes into the sea, then there's a second storm where Jesus assures his disciples that he is not a ghost, but it is I. If he casts the demon out of one man, then there's a second exorcism where he casts the demon out at the Gadder Seas. Now, what this assures us is that whatever God has done once, how many of you know that he can and he will do it again? But every now in scriptures, we find certain characters that are the summation of others. Stay with me. What I'm suggesting to us tonight is that this woman, this Seraphonician woman, is a combination of Jairus' daughter. She is a combination of the woman with the issue of blood. 
She is a combination of the persistent widow who kept knocking at the door of the judge in pursuit of a breakthrough. But not only that, she embodies the two storms that were raging at the seas, the demonic activity that went down into the sea, and she is also evidence of the feeding of the 5,000, the greater group, and the feeding of the 4,000, the lesser group. I'm suggesting that if we can grasp the essence of this scripture, we will find that Mark has combined the lessons of many others and put them here. Now, when you look at this story tonight, the Bible says that Jesus withdrew to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. This is Gentile territory. This is literally a place where they had idol worship. It's a place of paganism. Up until this point, he has been working miracles amongst the Jews who had not accepted his message. Herod has become suspicious. Tensions have been growing. The disciples are fearful and ceasingly doubtful and dubious. And the crowds have a mixed mind. And so oftentimes we would read in scriptures where the Bible would say Jesus withdrew from the crowds because he wanted to control the narrative. He didn't want them to try and make him king. He didn't want things to come to a head too quickly. So oftentimes he would heal somebody and then he would say, don't tell anyone that I healed healed you. So the Bible says Jesus withdrew. Somebody say he withdrew. He withdrew to the coast of Tyre and Sidon. And the Bible says that he wished to escape public notice, that Jesus wanted to be hidden. He wanted to be concealed. Now, if you look at Tyre and Sidon, historically, it is a place that was influenced by demonic activity. It was a place of extreme darkness. It was a place that was considered Gentile territory. Um, it's a place where the Canaanites dwell. Um, this is literally the same area, if you stu study it out and if you search it, that Jezebel emerged and turned Israel's heart away from God by introducing the to the idol worship of Baal. And so this is that area. It's an area of sexual immorality. It's an area of gross darkness. And Jesus finds himself in a dark place. But Mark makes special note that he could not be hidden. I declare and I decree in this house uh, that even though we may be facing times of intense darkness, even though the world may be growing darker and darker day by day, even though they may be enforcing and passing laws that do not favor the church or our biblical worldview, the Bible says that Jesus could not be hidden. And I echo the sentiments of Mark that Jesus will not be hidden. Come on. He won't be hidden in our churches. He won't be hidden in our country. He won't be hidden in our community. He won't be hidden in our lives. Somebody say he can't be hidden. He can't be hidden. And so literally Jesus is in this house and he's wishing uh, to be concealed. But everywhere that Jesus would go, he would always draw a crowd. How many know you can't hide the light of glory? And so literally he would get in a boat, he would go to the other side, and the multitudes would meet him on the other side. Um, the fame of Jesus would spread throughout the land. 
And so Jesus went to Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon is also a historical place where Elijah went. It's not far from Mount Carmel. Literally, the Bible says that the uh, widow of Zarephath literally sustained Elijah in this same area, which I thought was interesting because hundreds of years before this event, Elijah was told by God to go down to Zarephath when Israel was in a drought and in a famine. And I have raised up a widow who will sustain you there by giving you bread. Eventually, Elijah gets the bread from the widow who has a son that is dying. And ultimately, because of her obedience, which this widow in Old Testament was also a Canaanite. But because of her obedience, her and her son ate many days during the drought, and her son was resurrected or restored back to life. It's interesting because the widow's son was dying, and the main center of that Old Testament story was bread. Now, bread represents the provision of God. Bread represents the blessing of God. And so eventually, Elijah gave this widow bread, and she was sustained. Now, if you fast forward hundreds of years, we see a parallel story where Jesus is now in that same pagan region. You remember in the Old Testament, he asked her for a piece of bread, and she said, surely as the Lord your God liveth. That's because they were a pagan people. Now, fast forward, you have the same situation. Jesus is now in pagan territory, and there's literally a Canaanite Gentile woman who is asking Jesus for bread. She's asking Jesus for bread. Being outside of the covenant, being outside of the promise, and ultimately, Jesus will give her that bread, and he will resurrect or restore her dying daughter who is under demonic possession. So when you look at the text, the Bible says that uh, ultimately Jesus withdrew. He had this encounter with this woman. This woman was a Syrophoenician woman. She was Phoenician by birth and had been taken over by Syria. So it was Syrian territory. It said that she was Greek, not by nationality, but, but she spoke the Greek language. When you look at this woman, she had every strike against her. She was outside of the culture, the favor of the culture. She was outside of their promise. Literally, she was the quintessential Gentile. She had every strike against her. Her gender was against her. Her race was against her. Her nationality, her religion. As far as we can see, the text never mentions her having a husband or any covering. So as far as we can surmise, she was at least single in her petition. And on top of all of those strikes, she has a daughter that is grievously vexed with a demon. Now, when you look at what this woman represented, the quintessential Gentile, if you look it up in the original language, she was a descendant of the original Canaanites. The Canaanites and the Jews had historically been at odds with each other forever. They were enemies. They were like foes. They were, they were not companions. They weren't friends. This was a, a racial issue. This was a, a racial divide. It was segregation. They didn't have any dealings with them. Now, now, this woman 
even though she knows she has no rights to approach Jesus because they knew who they dealt with. They knew who they could interact with. They knew who that, that they could entreat and they would be accepted. You remember the woman at the well, she, Jesus asked her for a drink and she said, your people don't ask us for drinks. We can't do that. But this woman had no other alternative. She had exhausted all other means and she knew that Jesus was her only resort possible. So she was willing to lay it all down in order to see her daughter heal and restore. And I think that's one of the missing elements in the church today is that we have taken on a wrong mentality that we have taken on a passive, lackadaisical, lukewarm warm, lethargic uh, mentality that we have lost our hunger and our desperation for the things of God. Somebody say you got to lay it down. If it costs your life, you got to lay it down. That brings us to our first point. Our first point is that we have to run to Jesus. Somebody said we got to run to Jesus. Verse 25, it says, instead, after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Verse 26, now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by nationality, and she kept on pleading. She kept on pleading with him to drive the demon out of her daughter. That is a very important element of prayer. Somebody said we got to pray. This is a vital key of prayer that there has to be persistence in prayer. That when we go to our Father, we have to go to Him persistently, but we also have to go to Him with humility. The Bible says that we go boldly to the throne of grace. And although we go boldly, we don't do so arrogantly. So you still go before Him knowing your covenant rights by the blood of Jesus, but you still get low before His presence when you go before his throne. She goes in persistently hum with humility, refusing to be denied. She won't take no for an answer. She assumes even the position of a dog, which we'll get to later. She has a sense of urgency because she is in crisis. Uh, and I want to drop this in the house. You don't have to wait until your life gets in crisis before you develop a sense of urgency and desperation for the things of God. Good teaching. So her daughter is seemingly hopeless. She is grievously, distressingly, miserably, cruelly vexed by a demon. It's interesting because this woman, the text says, has a little daughter. She's demon-possessed. Not occasionally she gets some torment. She's grievously and miserably vexed and possessed by a devil. It is possible for children to have demons. And this mother so took on the weight and the burden of her daughter, C.L. Lewis said, even when situations are seemingly hopeless, if there is a mother who is willing to pray for her child, the situation is full of hope. 
This woman is interceding for her daughter who is vexed by a demon. And when she goes to Jesus, she takes the problem as her own. She doesn't say, Lord, have mercy on my child. Lord, have mercy on my daughter. She goes to Jesus and she says, Lord, have mercy on me. Somebody say, have mercy on me. And so she presses into Jesus knowing that he's the only one that can fix it. He's the only one that can change it. He's the only one that can make a difference in the situation. Proverbs chapter 18 verse 10, it says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. It says that the righteous can run therein and they are safe. Somebody say safe. Look at your neighbor, just give him a sign and say safe. Now listen, it says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. Watch this. The righteous walk therein. Crawl in. Casually go in. No, don't say any of that. It says the righteous run in. See, 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 when it comes to God being your strong tower, we can't become lazy and passive and entitled as if God owes us something. When you truly take on a mentality of God is all you have, when you take on a mentality that if God doesn't come through, it's not going to happen. If God doesn't make the way, it won't be made. You'll run into his presence because there is desperation and there's a sense of urgency when you approach the name of God. He says, we run therein, and we are safe. You find these principles uh, and these characters that she really is a combination of because she's a combination of the persistent widow. She's a combination of the friend who went in the middle of the night seeking bread from his friend, and he continuously knocked on the door, and his friend initially wouldn't answer the call, but as he persisted and kept on pleading with his friend, he got up and he gave him the bread. These are principles in prayer. And that is one of the biggest problems that we face is that we don't persist because when we get the first no, then that's pretty much when we roll out. It wasn't God's will. I prayed. I prayed. But prayer is the key. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 14, it says, if my people. Now the word if is always conditional. He says, if my people, which are called by my name, anybody been called by God's name? He says, would humble themselves. So he says, the first thing you got to do is you got to lower yourself under the mighty hand of God. He says, if you would humble yourself and pray and seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, he says, then will I hear. So he says, you got to lower yourself. Somebody say, you got to lower yourself. So when he says you got to lower yourself, it's in a position of humility. It's not standing up in your own strength and your own power with your chest bowed out like I got this. I'm going to depend on my efforts and my abilities and my gifts and my talent. He says, but it's a low place. Somebody says a low place. The rivers flow to the low places. 
So he says it's a low place. So he says you got to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's a position of desperation. It's a position of complete dependency. Like you're saying, God, I need you. God, I need you for my very next breath. I need you on my day-to-day functions. It's in you, God, that I live, that I move and have my being. God, I need you to be a good father. I need you to be a good husband. I need you to be a good spouse. I need you to be a preacher. I need you to deliver this word. Without you, I would completely fail. So he said, you got to humble yourself. Somebody said, humble yourself. He says, and pray and seek my face. Now, the word seek my face, here's that pleading part. It's not going in just one time. It's repetitively going out and going in until. So when you say seek, it is like as if I lost a quarter diamond in this ring on this stage. And I said, whoever finds this, I'll give you $10 million. Y'all would run like you was on fire. Oh, y'all shoot. I'm going to get that diamond. And you would just go and you would turn everything upside down and you would turn everything upside down and you would look for everything. And that is the same mentality and the same urgency we have to take on when we're seeking more from God. So many people say, God, I just want you to fall on me. God is saying, no, pursue me. Somebody say, seek his face. And so he says, if you seek my face and turn from your wicked ways, he says, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive your sins, and I'll heal your land. I'll hear you, I'll forgive you, and I'll heal you. Somebody say, he'll heal us. And so she runs to Jesus. She pleads with him. She pleads with him, Lord, have mercy on me. Somebody say, have mercy on me. The second point is, don't let rejection cause infection. I'm going to give you R's tonight. Somebody say R's. Run to Jesus, point number one. Point number two, don't let rejection cause infection. This is coming from Matthew chapter 15, verse 23. As she is approaching Jesus with one of the most important matters that she could ever face, Because listen, if if you really want to see a demon come out, mess with somebody's kids. That's all you got to do. Listen, I'm the nicest guy. Don't mess with Chloe. Don't mess with Jack. Then we have to get me baptized again. (laughs) She's got a crisis, Pastor Marty, with her daughter. And her daughter is vexed with a demon. And she runs to Jesus with this urgently uh, serious petition, request. Watch this. Jesus did not answer her a word. This is the most interesting conversation Jesus ever had in the Gospels. She's got a situation where her daughter is dying. Her daughter is in torment. And she runs to Jesus, pouring out her heart. And he answers her, not a word. Now listen, the highest form of disrespect is to ignore somebody. It wasn't that he didn't hear her. She was at his feet. What do you do when you're going to Jesus, the only one who you know can help you, and he turns his back to you? He doesn't answer you. He ignores her. 
Watch this. So we think that that's the worst that can happen. Gets a lot worse. His disciples came to him and urged him, send her away. Wow. Not the church people. Not the church people. She's ignored by Jesus. And then Jesus' followers, the disciples, they say, don't help her. Send her away. Why is she here? Send her away. For she cries after us. Then Jesus takes it another step. Somebody say another step. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus is silent. Now, when we read this text, and I put a bow on it. I know everybody's quiet. I knew it was going to happen. Somebody say he knew it was going to happen. Listen, when we read the text, it is raw. It is, has language that is in your face, abrasive. The text to many is offensive, but the reality is the text is just downright dangerous. And I believe that as people of God, we have been called to live dangerous lives. Now, now as she approaches Jesus, he answers her not a word. Somebody say not a word. Here's the deal. If we were all authentically honest tonight, we could all say, there were times when we approach Jesus believing for something, looking for something, expecting a turnaround, and we felt like God was silent on us. The prayer request wasn't answered. Listen, I, I, I could tell you stories. We have all been disappointed at some point in our pursuit of Jesus. But here's the key. What do you do when Jesus is silent? Well, one thing you don't do is allow your heart to be turned away from him. Okay. One thing you don't do is you don't let rejection cause infection. Because you can interpret it one way from a limited scope and a limited lens and a limited perspective, but then you cause that thing to fester within your heart and you end up with a bigger issue. When you're talking about infection, you're talking about being compromised, you're talking about impurity, you're talking about being poisoned, which could eventually work its way through your entire body and then cause a physical death. It's easy when something doesn't go our way or we don't understand it to allow ourselves to get into a place of offense, which actually causes unforgiveness and unchecked unforgiveness causes bitterness and bitterness will cause the infection. <sighs> okay, so watch this. Our devotion and our loyalty and our faith to Jesus is not circumstantial. It is unconditional. Somebody say it's unconditional. Yeah, yeah. when we feel like we didn't get what we wanted or didn't go the way that we intended it, we cannot allow infection to set in. We can't allow it to poison our body. Listen, you don't have to understand everything Jesus does to trust him. You don't have to know what he's doing to say, God, I put my hope and my confidence in you. 
It's just like in John chapter 6. If you remember John chapter 6, um, it was a story. And we talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Now, it's interesting because this story is bracketed between the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000 is right after that. So this story is sandwiched, Pastor Karen, in between those two feedings. The feeding of the 5,000 is the greater group represents the Jews because it was Jewish territory. But the feeding of the 4,000 comes right after the chapter, which represents that God's grace and his mercy was extended to the Gentile people. Okay, now watch this. John chapter 6, after the feeding of the greater group, the first group, John chapter 6, the Bible says that Jesus started talking. Now, I just got to, I got to say this. A lot of times we look at Jesus, we look at the story, and no matter how you look at it, this is a hard word. Ethan, it's a hard word. This is a tough word. No matter how you chew it, how you digest it, being ignored, being turned away, being called a dog, it's a hard word. But Jesus often gave hard words. Jesus often would say things to put people off, not to confuse them, but to see where their faith was. Good master. None is, why do you call me good? None is good but God. Jesus, stop that. You know what you're doing. He never denied that he was God. He never said that he wasn't good. But to the person who was asking the question, he just kind of gives them a riddle. He puts them off. Why you call me good? No, nobody's good but God. Man, leaves confused. John chapter 6, after the first feeding, watch what happens. Jesus is talking to the multitudes, and now he has hundreds of followers. Jesus has hundreds of followers because he just fed everybody. I'm like, well, listen, we want some more food with some of that fish. Some of that fried catfish and hush puppies. We want some of that, that red devil hot sauce and a side of fries. So he got these people following him. They're all following him, and everything is good. But then Jesus starts talking crazy. Seriously. Everything was all good. But then Jesus started talking about bread, and he started talking about wine, and the people was like, okay, that sounds pretty good too. And, and the people, they chimed in, and they said, well, our father Moses gave us manna from heaven when, we, when our ancestors were in the wilderness. And Jesus said, well, well, first of all, it wasn't Moses that gave you the manna from heaven. It was my father. It's in the text. He said, it was my father that gave you the manna from heaven. He said, second of all, they ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. He says, but I will give you bread from heaven, and if you eat it, you'll never die. So then the people, they, they literally, go back and read the text. It's so cool. They got so anxious. They said, well, Lord, give us this bread already. They called him Lord. Give us this bread already because the way he was talking they was like shoot we want this bread like if we can eat this and never die it sounded pretty good to them but then jesus said well actually i am the bread from heaven okay so he starts getting weird on them so they're like oh my goodness he says i am the bread from heaven and and and, and 
this would have been extremely offensive to the Jews who didn't even eat Lord certain meats. They wouldn't eat meat sacrificed uh, uh, to God. They would drain the blood. They didn't eat things with split hooves. They were very particular with what they ate and how they ate it. So now Jesus now is transitioning not only from that, but he's really talking about cannibalism. That's how they literally understood it. You don't believe me. Let's go further. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you ain't got no life. Jesus is just something else. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. You'll never have eternal life. Why did he do that? They would have never understood that. You know, we frown on the Pharisees and all that. We wouldn't have known either. We wouldn't have known. Listen, people today, y'all can't even come out of religious traditions and denominational ties. You would have never been able to recognize that this was the Messiah. Everything he was doing was very offensive and it didn't make any sense. He said, listen, eat my flesh or else drink my blood. Didn't explain anything. Didn't explain anything, Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy. He said, except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no eternal life. And then somebody said, this is a hard word. Who then can be saved? Now they were just excited. When he said, Lord, give us this bread already, they were willing to call him Lord as long as he met them on their terms and on their conditions. But the moment he gave them a hard word, watch it, the Bible says many of the disciples turned and left and they followed him no more. <sighs> you know why? Because their faith is circumstantial. They allow rejection to cause infection. All of the disciples deserted Jesus except the 12. And Jesus turns to the 12. And I love it because he says, will you leave me too? Come on, Peter. He said, Lord, where else will I go? Lord, where else will I go? I have no place to turn. Don't let your faith be circumstantial. You may not understand everything God is doing in your life. You may not be able to make sense out of it. But one thing that you can do is you can trust in the Lord with all of your heart. You can lean not to your own understanding. You can acknowledge him in all of your ways. And he will direct your path. I don't know how I'm going to finish this. So, the Bible says that the disciples... They say, after they get their cue from Jesus, because Jesus ignores the woman. And he ignores the woman. It's a hard word. He doesn't say anything to her. I was reading it as I was studying. I said, Lord, where is my Jesus and what did you do with him? 
who is this? And he ignores her. Disciples say, send her away. He said, I wouldn't send to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, the Geneva Bible said this 100 years ago. They actually understood this. There are some theologians that actually say that Jesus was racist. It's comical, right? We know that can't be true because then we wouldn't be here saved. <laughs> wouldn't qualify to be a savior. But they said he was racist and that this woman actually turned his heart. Because in Jewish culture, they did not have dealings with the Canaanites. This is historically true. Everything that Jesus was taught and would have learned would have included this racial division. That's why you got to know Jewish history. I'm telling you, it's in there. I read it. Everything about what Jesus would have done would not have included these people that were outside of the covenant promises of Abraham. They did not have dealings with them. I hear you, Pastor Karen. <laughs> so, I said, well, Lord, we know that's, that devil is a liar, so we're going to X that. So I said, then what were you doing? He said, not a word to her. The disciple says, send her away. Here's the deal. Jesus was embodying the perspective of what the Jews would have thought of the Canaanites. He's teaching his disciples a lesson. He's breaking down cultural barriers and racial division. Now, the disciples probably did have some problems. Y'all know they had problems. And they're taking their cue from their leader. So he's ignoring her and he's talking from the perspective of the Jews looking at his disciples while he's talking to the Canaanite woman. And he is exposing what is actually in their hearts. So this dialogue, it continues on. And the disciples, they say, send her away. For she cries after us. The disciples, bless their little hearts. They say, send her away, for she cries after us. Now, how many people think you're after them when you're trying to get to God? Listen, I'm not coming after you. I'm trying to get to Jesus. I'm not looking for you. I'm trying to get to my Savior. I'm trying to get to my master. They said, send her away. She's going after Jesus. They're talking about some send her away. She cries after us. They thought they was a main attraction. <laughs> so the conversation goes on. And he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The disciples have taken on a cultural and a social mentality. 
They have taken on cultural and social norms that include racial divides. They are being influenced by the world systems and the culture around them has begun to shape how they think, how they live, and how they interact. But the Bible says in Romans 12 and 2, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. Somebody say, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it, unlike the culture around you. And I think one of the biggest issues in the church is that we have been influenced negatively by the culture around us. Uh, we have been influenced by social norms. We have been influenced by media. We have been influenced by television. But I say what Romans says, you need to fix your heart on God. Fix your attention on God. Fix your focus on God. You need to get into the secret place and dwell therein. Somebody say fix your focus on God. Okay. So even though everything is dropping out, bottoms dropping out, nothing looks good. Woman doesn't look like she stands a chance. There's no hope. Number three, reverence his presence reverence his presence Matthew 15 and 25 then she came and she worshipped him saying Lord help me this woman knows who Jesus is this woman knows who Jesus is. She came to him and she worshiped and she said, Lord, help me. Not only did she say, Lord, help me, but in Mark, she actually spoke an Abrahamic faith-filled language. She gave him the messianic title and she says, Lord God, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Watch this. Matthew says that she said, Lord, three times. This Canaanite woman has more insight into who Jesus is than the disciples who have been walking with Jesus the entire time. I think that is interesting that when this, this, uh, this Jesus and his disciples, when they were in Jewish territory, he was trying to convince them, I am the Messiah. And they kept rejecting him saying, give, give us a sign. I'm the Messiah. Give us a sign. You Jesus? Give us a sign. But then when he goes into pagan Gentile territory, this woman comes bombarding him and he cannot dissuade her that he's the Messiah. She is persuaded, she is convinced, and she refuses to be denied. He gives her every reason to walk away. He gives her every reason to quit and to throw in the towel. But she refuses to give up. She has reverence for his presence. Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. This woman knows who he is. And she says, listen, the boys you brought, the disciples... They may not know who you are, but I know who you are. 
I know you have the power to change it. I know you have the power to fix my daughter. I know that you can save. I know that you can heal. I know that you can deliver. I know that you can make a whole. And when you know who Jesus is for yourself, when you've had experiences with the Lord, you won't be so quick to give up, to quit, or throw in the towel, but your perspective will be changed because you know that he's full of grace. You know that he's rich in mercy. I think we should just take a few moments and give God some praise right there. If you know Jesus for yourself, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. I think it's also interesting that she proclaims Jesus basically as the Messiah. She gives him the right title. Now, she did this in chapter 7. Peter wouldn't make his declaration until the next chapter. And he heard it from this woman first. Peter gets a lot of credit. But he was here. He was here when she acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah. Oh Lord, thou son of David. Number four, and I'm almost finished. She has a relentless pursuit. Somebody say a relentless pursuit. Mark 7, 27, it says, he was saying to her, first, let the children be fed, for it is not right. That means it's not meat. It is not proper. It is not good. It is not suitable. It is not appropriate. And it is not fair to take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. Now, to call a Gentile a dog historically was very offensive. They were referring to them as like wild canines and, and scavengers. They ate dead flesh and they were unclean animals. So historically, they were often called dogs. Jesus, what are you doing? Please stop. I, if I was there, I would have said, Jesus, please, please. I know you're trying to prove a point, but this lady's hurting. He said, Derek, I know what I'm doing. He says it's not right. Somebody say it's not right. To take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, you know, theologians say that this wasn't reference to the wild dogs, but this was actually a domesticated pet, which is validated in the sense that he says the little pups eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table, right? So he's saying these are little dogs. These are not the scavenger big wild dogs, but to me it don't really matter. Now listen, a lot of ladies in this generation, they wouldn't have got their daughter healed because right there, they would have went off on Jesus. They said, look, listen, I ain't no dog. You ain't going to sit there and call me no dog. I'm not no wild dog. I'm not no pet dog. I'm a woman. You're going to call me what I am. Call me by my name. They got their head rolling, their fingers snapping and all that. Hair flinging and swinging all around. Bless their hearts. The lady, this Seraphonician woman, she didn't do any of that. She said, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little pups. But I love this woman because she's witty. She really goes tit for tat. And she challenges Jesus' remarks toward her. She is relentless. 
She refuses to be denied. She's not going to leave his presence without seeing her situation changed. And she replied, yes, Lord. Somebody say, yes, Lord. But even the little pups under the table eat the crumbs that fall. You know what she was saying? She was saying, in other words, if that's the way you're going to bless me, I'll take it under the table. Wait a minute. Because she said, listen, it, when it said it's not right, it's not proper, it's not fair, it's not meat, it's not according to etiquette, it's not according to our world system, it's against protocol. But, but, but he said, under the table. Somebody say, under the table. When the hand of God can slip you some things under the table, here's a gift, here's a calling, here's a blessing, here's some favor, here's an open door, here's a revelation, here's an open heaven, here's a career, here's a job. When the hand of God can feed you under the table, it doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be proper, and it doesn't have to be fair. Somebody say, I'm under the table. This lady said, I'm willing to go under the table. I'm willing to eat when nobody else is getting fed. Joseph was under the table. Rahab was under the table. David was under the table. When you're under the table, you're getting fed at 3 o'clock in the morning when nobody else is up. Uh, and it's just you and God. And God will begin to download revelation. Somebody say, I'm under. Somebody say, I'm under the table. Somebody put your hands together and give God some praise. She said she was under the table. She said she was under the table. The last step is that she got a reward. Somebody say a reward. Mark chapter 7, he said unto her, because of this answer, reflecting her humility, reflecting her faith, that she positioned and prostrated herself as a dog. She didn't get offended. She didn't let rejection turn into an infection. She said, listen, God, listen, I may be out of the covenant promises. I may not be entitled to it. She says, but even the little dogs, they get the crumbs that fall from the master table. I don't need a whole meal. I don't need to sit at the table. I don't need what everybody else has happened. But whatever blessings drop my way, come on, just one drop of of oil whatever miracles any way that you bless me I'll be satisfied somebody say I'm under the table anyway here's what's amazing she gives this brilliant answer and she returns home to find her daughter similar to Jairus's daughter lying on the bed relaxing and resting the demon having gone out of her. She refused to be denied. And this is the heart of every true believer. That even though we're saved, we're born again, 
we're washed in the blood, we always take on a, a low place of humility that we savor and are satisfied with every crop that drops our way. That we realize that it doesn't matter how good we live or what covenant we have, that all of our righteousness is still as a filthy rags before the Lord. That we are satisfied with the crumbs that drop from the master's table. And what's amazing is that even though we're satisfied, God, our Father, is not satisfied giving us those crumbs. But he has invited us to sit at the table. Somebody give God some praise. He's invited us to sit at the table. He's invited us to sit at the table. There's a table prepared for us. There's a banquet table in heaven. It's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we have been called to be partakers in his divine nature. Somebody give God some praise. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet, church. Come on.